Good morning. Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 136. Psalm 136, close to the middle of your Bible. As you're turning there, I want to talk and think together for just a minute about the Mississippi River. It's one of the biggest rivers on planet Earth. It's not the biggest, but it's awfully large. It's close to here. It's in our backyard here in Memphis. At some points, it's a full mile wide. Hard to imagine a river that wide, and you have to spend a long time just to drive across it. A lot of you who are here today did that this morning. You drove across the mile-wide river. Have you ever wondered how deep it is? You look at it, and you can't tell. It's awfully muddy water. You can't tell how far down it goes. can't tell how far down it goes. At some points, some points, it's 200 feet deep. Not the whole thing, but there are points at 200 feet deep. That's a 20-foot, 20-story skyscraper. That's a lot of water, and it is continuously rushing and flowing. Well, we're used to the part that we see here in Memphis, but maybe some of you knew it originates in Minnesota at a lake uh, that starts with an I and I couldn't pronounce, but in Minnesota. And really, the Mississippi River is a giant drainage ditch. So all the water, generally speaking, that comes down I guess on your end, this is the Rocky Mountains, and over here you have the Appalachian Mountains. All the water that drains through a whole system of rivers ends up in the Mississippi. That's where it all comes from. That's why when there's a lot of rain in the entire center of the United States, the Mississippi River swells. It's a really big river, and I want to point out to you that it has been there a very long time. Now, Today, we have bridges that go across it, and there are barges that float down it, and even speedboats that go up and down, fishermen and people looking for leisure. But before there were gas engines, the river was still there. And if you went back in time, you'd see the steamboats puffing up and down. If you've seen old pictures of Memphis and uh, the way things used to be in the old kind of old-timey, hokey-looking steamboats, it reminds you of maybe the mid-20th century, how things were. But before that, even in the Civil War, the late 19th century, so 1800s, the river was still there. And it was a tactical feature of geography. You had the north and the south, and the river was a big deal back then to them. And whoever controlled the river controlled a lot. But you can go further back in time, and the river was still there. When the American colonists were pushing from the east coast, the 13 colonies, pushing westward, they ran into, guess what, the Mississippi River. And imagine trying to get your family as far as you can west and you run into what we see out here. How do you get across that back in those early days? But the river had been there a long time before that. Who knows how many hundreds or thousands of years before that, Native Americans made their homes up and down along the coast of the river for the fertile farmland and for the fishing with nets and spears. I looked into that some, pretty amazing, the way they would catch their fish. But entire societies have come and gone. So many people have been born and lived and died, and the river is the same. It's still there. Our short-lived little fleeting lives pass away and the river just flows on. In fact, if you really stretch your mind and you think of the river, it existed and was still doing the same thing it's doing today before there was any kind of written history, at least that we have access to. Think of as far back as you can here before there were any Europeans, maybe there were Native Americans then, maybe before that, I don't know. I guess a good ways before that, before there's history that we have access to, the river was there. The river is about as close as we can get to an encounter with something that seems to be an everlasting entity. Something that seems to have come from an era of mystery about which we know nothing. And it also seems will outlast all of us. If the Lord tarries, everybody in this room will live and die, and the river will last on. That brings us to our sermon text for today, where 26 times in a row, we're told that the loving kindness of God is everlasting. 
has no beginning, it has no end, and it never changes. God himself is everlasting, he's eternal. And therefore, because God is also immutable or unchanging, his character is unchanging. It is also everlasting, his character. He was there before the world was, and he was the same then as he is now. Like the river, God comes, it seems to us, from an era of mystery when there was no recorded history. That mysterious time about which we know only very little, only what we have revealed to us in the pages of the Bible. We could talk about any aspect of his character. We could talk about his omnipotence, his being all-powerful. We could talk about his omniscience, being all-knowing. We could talk about any attribute of God, all of them, because God is eternal and God is immutable, are all the same, unchanging. But today, our sermon text lands us in Psalm 136, and the psalmist points out for us over and over and over again one particular eternal, immutable, immutable pardon me, attribute of the character of God, and that is his loving kindness. It's portrayed as everlasting, unchanging. It's independent of us and our lives, independent of us and our feelings and our experiences, our joys and our sufferings. God's loving kindness never changes. Nations rise, nations fall, God stays the same and so does his loving kindness. So listen now as I read the psalm, as God speaks and make it your prayer, ready your heart asking God to reveal himself to you. What does loving kindness mean? And what is it, what kind of description is that of our God? Who is he, the God of loving kindness? Hear the word of God from Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who alone does great wonders, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the heavens with skill, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the great lights, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The sun to rule by day, for his loving kindness is everlasting. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And brought Israel out from their midst, for his loving kindness is everlasting. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his loving kindness is everlasting. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who smote great kings, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And slew mighty kings, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And Og, king of Bashan, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And gave their land as a heritage for his loving kindness is everlasting. Even a heritage to Israel, his servant, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 23. Who remembered us in our lowest state, for his loving kindness is everlasting, and has rescued us from our adversaries, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who gives food to all flesh, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Join me in prayer. Father, 26 times 
as your acts, your deeds are recounted, we hear that refrain, your loving kindness is everlasting. We're so fickle, we're so fleeting, we change, we're up, we're down, we're good, we're bad, we're believing, we're unbelieving, we're sinning, we're obeying, all of it, Lord, and yet you are the same. Your loving kindness is forever. So we make it our prayer now together that you would reveal yourself to us. We don't deserve it, but you have everlasting loving kindness, blessing for the undeserving, goodness and mercy, kindness, faithful covenant love to sinners like us. So come and reveal yourself. Show us the glory of Christ. Show us his supreme worth and value and make us love and live for him. I pray in his name, amen. Well, it's a unique psalm, Psalm 136. The repetition sticks out and we need for just a minute to get oriented to the way that the psalm works. In other words, you need to learn the rules of the psalm before you play the game. You all notice the repetition for his loving kindness is everlasting. He repeats it for his loving kindness is everlasting, but it's more than mere repetition. It begins with four, four means explanation. And what always precedes those, that, that refrain, that repeating refrain, are descriptions of God and his works, things that he has done. You heard some of the history of Israel recounted, and then he says, well, let me explain those acts, those deeds. They're expressions of his everlasting loving kindness. So it's really, you could call it the history of Israel, but you could also call it the history of God's loving kindness to his people. That's rule number one. Rule number two of the psalm. If you look in verse, I want you to actually look at the pages of your Bible here. Look in verses one to three. Notice that they all begin with the command, give thanks. That's the NASB. I think all the major translations translate it that way. Give thanks. Do this. Give him thanks to the Lord, to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. And then look in verse four. I'm reading out of the NASB, I think. All or most of the translations do something very similar. The NASB says, to him who alone does great wonders. You don't usually start a sentence like that, to him. And what's happening is that you're supposed to understand that command, give thanks, carries through the whole psalm. Give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the God of gods, give thanks to the Lord of lords. And then in verse four, again, give thanks to him who alone does great wonders. Wonders. The give thanks is implied, and it's implied throughout the whole psalm. In fact, the entire psalm is a repeating refrain, give thanks to him. To who? Well, he tells you who he is. Give thanks to the God who does this. So, for example, give thanks to the one who made the world. Give thanks to the one who rescued his people from Egypt. Give thanks to the one who slayed these mighty kings. Give thanks to the one who rescues and provides for his people. The command to give thanks or to praise God you could translate it, carries through the whole psalm. That's rule number two. Now, you need to combine rule number one and rule number two, and then you'll understand how each of the verses work. There's a combination. First, give thanks to the God who does this, and then he explains, for his loving kindness is everlasting. You could say it another way. Give thanks to the God who does these great deeds because those great deeds are examples or expressions of his loving kindness. Give thanks to God for all the ways his loving kindness has been poured out on his people. Let me give you some examples, says the psalmist. That's the way the psalm is structured. It's a great list of the kindness of God to his people and as the psalmist remembers them, he again and again implores the people to give him thanks for all the goodness and kindness of God over the centuries. That's the rules of the game. We're almost ready to play. We need two definitions. 
the word give thanks, and then that other word, loving kindness. First, give thanks. You could translate it, give thanks. You could translate it, praise, give praise to God, give him thanks. And just to be brief, I'll give you uh, one verse that I think illustrates or will help you get the, the gist of what you're meant to do. It is a command after all. Ezra 3.11, the people are rebuilding the temple. They get the foundation laid. God has provided for them. It was an impossible situation and yet they're rebuilding the temple. Ezra 3.11, they sang praising, and here's the word, giving thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They're exultant. They are enraptured with the goodness and kindness of God. And having received it, having accomplished for him the foundation of the temple, what they thought was impossible, and having seen his provision and his goodness, they turn their hearts back to him and they give him thanks. That's the word. Give thanks to the Lord. Each verse of Psalm 136 is meant to fill up your cup until it overflows in that kind of worshipful thanksgiving to your God. You're supposed to be moved. You're supposed to be uh, changed and roused to worship and thanksgiving of your God as you read the Psalm. You are commanded to be moved in that way. Next, the word loving kindness. That's a word we don't use. I bet none of you have ever used that word in your normal day-to-day life, and yet here it is in our English Bibles, loving kindness. Complicating matters, the major translations all translate it differently. None of them pick the same translation. I'm reading from the NASB. Here's some examples. NASB is loving kindness, and then you also have steadfast love, or just love, or faithful love or even mercy you say my goodness that's a lot of variability it's sort of hard to latch on to what does that word mean all the translations sound so different they do to me let me read you one dictionary definition for the word that I think I'm gonna read it twice I think it will help you to get get what he's what the word is meant to convey here it is a beneficent action performed in the context of a deep, enduring commitment between two persons or parties, and is performed by the one who is able to render assistance to the needy party, who in the circumstances is unable to help him or herself. All right, definitions are hard to latch onto. I'm gonna read it one more time and I'll give you an example. A beneficent action performed in the context of a deep and enduring commitment between two persons or parties, by one who is able to render assistance to the needy party, who in the circumstances is unable to help him or herself. Okay, so maybe if I say it this way, imagine a father who over the lifespan of his child, in a committed relationship, obviously father to son, continually does good to his son. The son cannot meet his own needs. The father continually provides for and blesses the son. Beneficent action on repeat. In the context of that kind of committed relationship between a father and a son, and the one who does the action, who does the giving, is the one who's able to do the blessing. And they do it to the needy one. Loving kindness. Steadfast love. Love, faithful love, mercy. That's our word. So now you know the rules of the game. That's how the psalm works. Give thanks to the God who does these things because they're all expressions of his great faithful mercy and love to his people. Consider the first three verses, verses one through three. They introduce and summarize the psalm. The first description there in verse one is that God is good. He's good. That's a banner description of God. It spans all his actions for all time. God is good always. Maybe you've, like me, you've had your kids walk up to a dog in the neighborhood and they ask your neighbor, hey, can we pet your dog? 
And the neighbor says, oh yes, my dog is very sweet. He would never bite anyone. And you're thinking, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> we'll see, you kind of look at the dog out of the corner of your eye, a little suspicious, just eager for that interaction to end. You know, you don't know if the dog is really a good dog or not. It's not the way God is. You don't have to watch him. He is good through and through, unchanging, trustworthy, good, always doing right, no sin, no shifting shadow in him. And you should give him thanks. You should praise him for his goodness. And remember that that goodness is often expressed in this loving kindness to his people. That's verse one. And then verse two and three, we're told to give thanks to the God of gods and the Lord of lords. And we being good Bible people think, well goodness, are there more than one God? And of course the answer is no, there is one God. The psalmist knows this. It's actually the point of the whole psalm. He's directing the people's attention to the only true God and recounting his actions for his people. What does he mean? Well, he might mean, I think he probably does mean that all the gods of the nations are idols. They're mute, they can't speak, they can't move their hands, they can't hear, they can't see, they don't do anything, they're just lumps of wood that men have carved out and crafted into gold, into images. God is God, they are not. The same could be said for the Lord of Lords. There's, it's, it's God's design that there is a hierarchical structure in the world all the time, and he's put governments over people, which is another way of saying there are lords, earthly magistrates, we have all kinds of governments, federal, city, county, on and on. All the people in power have a Lord over them. His name is Yahweh, he's the triune God. Every knee will bow to the one true God. They don't now, they stand up tall in pride and they spread their chest and they stiffen their neck, but the day will come when the Lord of Lords will reveal himself. We should give him thanks for being the supreme ruler of all. And then the psalmist shifts gear there in verse four. This is our second section, verse four, and he starts talking about creation. Give thanks to the one who does great wonders alone, all by himself. And you say, what great wonders? And then he goes on and he describes what wonders that God has done. He describes the Lord stretching out the heavens, that's the skies, with wisdom or skill. Imagine their complexities. Imagine the meteorological shifts and the way that the weather changes and for all that to happen throughout the entire world, all of that. And then imagine all the beauty of it all, the sunsets, the sunrises. Imagine the terribleness of a rolling thunderstorm, the way it crashes and booms and all of that. And God in his perfect wisdom put it all there. And then in the next verse, He describes the way that God founded the earth. It says that he spread out the earth over the waters. He spread it. The imagery is almost as if God used his hand and shoved it down and flattened out the whole earth. He put planet earth into its 23 and a half degree tilt and he set it whirring around once every 24 hours night and day, night and day, night and day, and then he sent it orbiting around the sun, now we know, every 365 days, and what you get, from our perspective, is the great light in the day, that's the sun, to rule the day, to give light and to establish the days and the seasons, like the years, and then the lesser light, the moon, and the stars in the sky to govern the night, from where we get our months, and how you see at night before you have electricity. They're his great wonders that he does on his own. And remember that all the creation that we're describing that the psalmist is referring to, it all happened before the fall. Creation is good. The fall happened after creation. When God created the world, the heavens, the earth, the moon, the stars, he got done and he called it what? What did he call it? Good. He looked at it all and he said it was all good. And then remember where we began, the second rule, that all the things that God has said to have done here, including the sun, the moon, the stars, the sky, the earth, they're expressions of his loving kindness. 
He put the greater light in the sky, his loving kindness is everlasting. He put the lesser light in the sky, his loving kindness is everlasting. Creation itself is an expression of God's loving kindness. It'd be something like a newly married husband and he builds his wife and their new little family a home. And he designs it with as, as good of aesthetics as he can get, he designs it with her in mind. And every swing of the hammer, he's thinking about her. Every time he rolls the paint, every hinge that gets screwed in, all that, he's rejoicing to bless her, to put her in a home that she will love. And so it is that God has made the world for his own glory and to place his people in it, to bless them as an act of his loving kindness, his faithful love, his steadfast mercy. That's the place that you live. Maybe we mainly complain about the weather. God's, not God's intent for us is to complain incessantly about the weather and never rejoice in the world that he's made. You're meant to go outside and you see the blueness of the sky and we contrast with the green and the whiteness of the clouds and to say, there is a good God in heaven who loves his people and who has given us more blessings than we deserve a thousand times over. I know Darwin has taught us to think of earth as a specimen, to be examined scientifically, put a pin in it, don't rejoice in it, study it only, look at it. But that's not the way the psalmist talks about the Bible. He says that, not the way the psalmist talks, pardon me, about creation. He talks about it as a tremendous blessing from a kind God who loves his people. And he commands you to give him thanks for it. Give thanks to God, Grace Church, because he established the heavens and the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars. Praise him. He commands you to give him thanks. Now, I need to stop and say a quick word about God commanding people to give him thanks. That may rub some of you the wrong way. It's rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Famously, C.S. Lewis was rubbed the wrong way by uh, reading the Psalms and God commanding praise for himself. It seemed egotistical to him. It seemed egomaniacal, like he was arrogant. But it's not always that way. I'll just give you one example. Back to the father and his, and his son, his toddler son. We all know, don't we, that fatherlessness is a curse on sons. It wreaks all kind of havoc when boys grow up without dads. God can redeem that, God can step in, but God's design is for boys to have fathers. And fathers know this, good fathers know this. So what do they do? They give themselves to their sons. That's what a good dad does. And he's not arrogant for doing it. He knows the need of the child. And so, maybe it sounds crazy to you, but he blesses his child with himself. And that doesn't rub any of us the wrong way because we all know that's what the kid needs. That's what the boy needs. So it is with God. God knows that everybody in this room needs him. So what does he do? He blesses us with himself. And he looks down and he blesses you, in this case, with the created order. He shows it to you and he says, I love you. Look at it. Look what I've given to you. And then he lifts your head so that in worship you can have what you need and say, we praise you, we thank you, God. So drink deeply as you consider the created order. You have a father who loves you. When you go outside, I know it's broken, I know that. I know the fall happened, I know there's mosquitoes, I know all that. But it's still glorious. When you go outside, worship God, give him thanks, receive the created world as his loving kindness. In the next section though, the psalmist narrows his scope. We were big in creation. He gets real narrow in verses 10 through 22 and he turns his attention towards God's kindness to his covenant people. Particular acts and deeds of kindness to a particular people, not just in general, not to everyone. Verses 10 to 22, the verses tell the story of God's kindness in rescuing his people out of Egypt. That's where he starts and he brings them safely into the promised land. So the people are there, they start by a really small number of people, about 400 in Egypt, and then over time they multiply, but they're living under the thumb of Pharaoh as their slaves. 
This is the people of God in a foreign land under a pagan king, oppressed and made to be his slaves. But there's background material. You guys, if you're familiar with your Bible, as many of you are, you know that there's these outstanding promises. God had promised that they would not only go there, but that he would bring them out. He'd promised to Abraham that he would give him the land of the Canaanites, the promised land. There's these promises waiting. He'd chosen this people. We find out elsewhere that he didn't choose the people because they were choosable, not because they were lovable. There was nothing unique or special about them. In fact, they weren't. It was only God had decided in his sovereign nature to bless this particular people, but they didn't have blessings yet. They had slavery. And then the Psalm says that he brought them out. He alludes to the 10 plagues. He said he struck Egypt in their firstborn, both boys and beasts. That's the angel of the Lord passing through Egypt and putting to death who knows how many thousands of boys and beasts. The firstborn all dead. Of course, that follows the 10 plagues, God's repeated warnings, God's repeated commands for the Egyptians and Pharaoh as their head to repent, and he would not. And after the firstborn are slayed, Pharaoh cracks, he sends the entire Israelite people out into the wilderness. They get trapped up against the Red Sea like a trapped animal. They don't know what they're gonna do, they're terrified, and then God intervenes. And what does he do? He, like taking a giant pair of cosmic scissors, he splits the Red Sea into two pieces and pushes the water back so that the people walk through on dry ground. It would be something like going into Manhattan and you have skyscrapers on either side of you as you walk down the road, but they're giant walls of water. I mean, you'd have been terrified, right? That's not the kind of thing that anybody in this room has ever seen. God is intervening because he loves his people, because of his loving kindness. And then, of course, the Egyptians follow them, and God causes all that water to come crashing down and destroy the Egyptians. Verse 15 says it this way, God tossed them into the sea. He tossed them in. It sounds so easy for him. And then in verse 16, God begins to lead his people through the wilderness. And man, time will fail me if I tell of all the stories of water from the rock and bread from heaven and everything that happened. They would have died, you know, they certainly would have died from starvation or dehydration or disease or all kinds of injuries. And when I say died, I mean the entire people would have been wiped out and nothing but a bunch of corpses and then skeletons scattered throughout the desert. But God provided for them miraculously. God led his people in the wilderness, verse 16. His loving kindness was continually on them. And then he mentions these two kings, Sihon and then Og. These pagan kings, maybe you remember this story. We don't tell it as often as we do some of the other parts of the wilderness, but the Israelites needed to pass through. They were trying to get where God was leading them and their path led through Sihon and then later Og's territory. And they said, listen, just let us go through. We're not gonna take any of your stuff. We won't mess with your crops. We won't mess with your wells. We won't do any of that. We just need safe passage. We don't need anything from you, just passage only. And so Sihon just comes out with an army tries to destroy them. He's gonna destroy the people of God, really in an unprovoked kind of way. And what happens? Israel destroys him. The text says that God slew him. He smited him, he killed him. God killed Sihon. He struck them down. Now if you go back and you read the story in Numbers 21 where it's found, Moses, who wrote it, says that it was Israel Israel struck them down, but the psalmist can look back and say, oh, God struck them down. It was God at work through his people, through the army of Israel. And then their lands, what do you do with an entire kingdom destroyed and they have all this land? Well, it becomes the inheritance of the people of Israel. Verse 22 and 23, he gave them an inheritance. And you can read back in Joshua 12 that That particular land was allotted to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So you remember when they get to the promised land, land, the land is divvied up and given to his people as an inheritance. Well, some of that came from Sihon and Og. Now, listen to me for a minute. 
I want you to remember the rules of the game. You remember the rules? Give thanks to God because he's the one who did these things and these things are expressions of his loving kindness. We're commanded to give thanks to the God who smote or slayed the Egyptians, thousands of them. The God who divided the Red Sea, the God who led his people in the wilderness, who smote these two kings, he gave their land to his people as an inheritance. We're supposed to thank him for all this because all this is the fruit of his loving kindness. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were gonna write a psalm and the assignment was write a psalm about the great deeds of the loving kindness of God, would your psalm have words like slayed them? struck them down, tossed them into the sea. Would your psalm have that? Maybe you bristle at those ideas. If you do, maybe all of us, it's true. I'm telling you that you or we have a different definition for God's loving kindness than God does. God says you should praise him for striking down these kings because you see his loving kindness in it. Sometimes I worry that we have a soft God. We always talk about inventing a God of our own imagination. We make him up in our own image. We blur the lines of his character in a way that sort of kinda matches up with the way he's revealed in scripture, but then it sort of doesn't because some of these things rub us the wrong way a little bit. I talked before a couple of weeks ago about how ideologies and ideas and assumptions, they swirl around in every culture and all of us are more shaped and formed by those things than we are even aware of. But the challenge as Christians is to peel back the onion and to wash away all the ideas that come onto us from the world and even all the ones that come out from inside of our sinful hearts and to let scripture tell us what's true. to let scripture tell us who our God is, to let him speak to us directly and tell us who he is. And, and one of the ideological winds that's blowing today like a hurricane is an attack on righteousness, an attack on justice. But you only swallow it, you only believe it if you also accept some fundamental premises, that is some ideas that came before that support these later ideas. The fundamental false premise, false assumption, is that there is no God. We live, of course, in an increasingly secular age. Many, many people operate in their mind with the assumption that there is no God. And here's the logic. Let the premise flesh itself out, here it is. If there is no God, then there is no standard, no fixed standard, no objective reference point to determine right from wrong. In fact, categories like right and wrong don't even exist. They can't exist if there's no God, if there's no objective reference point. That's the claim, that's the ideology of the day. If there's no God, claims about right and wrong have to be coming from some other place. They have to be explained some other way. Why are these people so insistent about what's right and what's wrong, about what's righteous and what's wicked? Well, there's no God, so they must be up to something else. What else are they up to? The common explanation these days is to explain everything that has to do with morality in terms of power. If there's no God and therefore no right and wrong, then all claims of right and wrong are really just disguised power grabs. You hear this all the time. Maybe you don't know that you hear this all the time, but you do. You hear it all the time. Here's how it sounds. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? The assumption is that there is no God standing behind claims of right and wrong and that you are intruding on me. Or how about now that especially Roe v. Wade has been overturned, you hear this one a lot, get your theology off my body. You ever heard that? Or how about just really explicitly, oh yeah, religions, they're all just ways of controlling people. The assumption is there is no God and therefore all those claims about right and wrong are, must be, they must be, grabs for power. But this psalm will have none of that. 
There is a God. There is one true God. His name is Yahweh. He's triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's intervened, broken into history, and does things. In fact, he imposes his own will and his standards about what's right and wrong onto the world, even in such a way that he is destroying these kingdoms and slaying these men. God is intervening. And the psalm portrays this intervention, this execution of righteousness and justice against men like Sihon and Og as loving kindness. As loving kindness. What is the connection between righteous judgment and loving kindness? And the answer is that sometimes God's kindness to his covenant people results in judgment for their enemies who are also God's enemies. Remember that the Canaanites, men like Sihon and Og and all the rest of the Canaanites, were pagans. They were idol worshipers. Sihon's god was named Chemosh. They were devoted to their idols in defiance of the one true God. And because they were devoted to their God and opposed to the one true God, they also were opposed to his people and tried to kill them. But God loves his people. He's put himself in a covenant with his people. These men deserved his judgment. It's the same way today. God will vindicate his people. He'll come and judge the earth. The wicked will not prevail. Oppression, oppression, pardon me, and persecution that now seems unchecked in so many ways, we could think of examples, won't last. God will come in judgment. No doubt Sihon and Og sat on their thrones for a long time thinking themselves invincible before the judgment of God came to them. But God's loving kindness will express in itself in the rescue of his people in doing good to his people, in doing what is right according to his own definitions and standards, which are the only true definitions and standards. But think of those Israelites who lived and died as slaves in Egypt. I told you they were there 400 years. 400 years, that means many of them were born and lived and died and never got an ounce of freedom, never got an ounce of rescue, they were born as Egyptian slaves and they died as Egyptian slaves. Lots and lots of them. 400 years, I mean, that's a long time. You could say the great majority of the Israelites who went to Egypt or were born there, the great majority of them never got out. Only a small minority were actually rescued from Egypt. In other words, we don't always know what God's loving kindness will look like in our lives. He doesn't tell us. He does tell us that his loving kindness is everlasting. He does tell us things like Romans 8, God causes all things to work together for good to his people, but he does not tell us exactly how. He does tell us some. He does tell us that even our sufferings has a purpose, has to do with changing us, has to do with our character formation, has to do with making us into the image of Christ. But we all have so many sorrows. We have all kinds of disappointments and diseases and death and everything else, and we think, oh, how is this God's loving kindness? Well, my encouragement to you is to not insist, to resist the temptation to insist, or even just latch on to one particular way in which God could be kind to you. We do this, it makes us feel better. Oh, if he's not gonna do this, surely he'll do this. If I'm not gonna get into this school, uh, surely, because God is kind and God is sovereign, I'll get into this one. Or if this girl won't go out with me, surely this other one will. Or if I don't get this promotion, surely it'll work out and I'll advance some other way, right? But maybe, maybe not. God doesn't tell us. Remember those Israelites, lots and lots of them. God was good to them. God was faithful to them. They're in heaven rejoicing with him now and praising him. And they lived and died in Egypt. And then God came and rescued his people after they died. We don't get to define what form God's loving kindness will take in our lives as far as all the practicals. We like to try, but no, God hasn't made those kinds of promises to us. He's made better promises to us. 
promises to bring us safely home, promises to make us like Christ, promises that he's working everything out for good even when we don't see all the details. That brings us to the last four verses of the psalm, which act as a conclusion. It completes the psalm in sort of a summary fashion. We'll just handle them briefly. Verse 23 and 24 describe generally, or summarize, God's remembering his covenant people. He didn't fail to forget their sufferings and affliction. He did what he promised to do. They stayed 400 years of Egypt and he rescued them out with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Verse 25 zooms back out, describes God's provision of bread food for all flesh. He's the God who gives life and breath and everything to all flesh. And then verse 26 concludes the psalm. Look at verse 26 for a second. It picks back up again that explicit command, give thanks to the God of heaven. It picks it back up again. It's not implied. What does he mean by the God of heaven? The idea is that God is transcendent. He's above all. He's not finite like us. He's eternal, he's separate from sin, he's without need, he's self-sufficient, he's supreme, he's the God of heaven. And then in perfect completeness, the refrain one more time, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And so concludes the psalm. And as we conclude, I wanna ask you again, If you were gonna write a psalm of thanksgiving to God, what would you write? A psalm about the loving kindness of God for which he should be thanked. What would you write? Because if you think about this psalm, like most of the psalms, it was written around the time that David lived, a long time ago, and I point that out to say it was in a particular point in redemption history. In other words, The people had come out of Egypt, there had been Abraham, they came out of Egypt, they had gotten into the promised land, the kingdom had grown to its apex under David and Solomon, and that's all that had happened yet when they wrote the psalm. And the whole psalm is backward looking. He's looking back at what God has done, but we're not at that point at 1000 BC or so. We're much later than that in history, aren't we? We have different things to look back on there's more there, there's more in the rearview mirror for us, we've gone further down the road. What would you write if you had to write a psalm about God's loving kindnesses to you as you look back in redemption history? Maybe you'd write, there's a lot of things you could write. You could write the story of redemption history, kind of like the way they began, you could finish it off and tell the story. Or maybe you'd write examples from your own life, practical things where God had blessed you and things that he had brought you through a story of your own conversion and the way that he provided for you in really good ways. That would be a good thing to write. Maybe you'd summarize the entirety of church history from zero AD to 2022. If you could do that, that would be remarkable. Those would all be worthy pursuits. Maybe somebody here will write one this afternoon and post it on our church's social media. But it's not really a novel idea that I'm suggesting, is it? to write a song or psalm rehearsing God's loving kindness, God's great deeds and giving him thanks. In fact, a lot of people have done that. And you know, we've just been, I think we sang three of them this morning so far. That's what hymns are. That's why people still write them. They express their heart of thanksgiving and worship to God for his loving kindness and for his other attributes, the other things that he has done. Well, we have a whole lot of hymns from the last 400 years or so, I mean more than that, but we have a whole lot from uh, recent history. What do they write about? If you go back and you crack open your hymn hymn book and you read the words there, what do saints of the more modern centuries write about when they look back and they say, ah, there's the loving kindness of God, let's give him thanks. What do they write about? Well, they write about all kinds of things. There's a lot of variability, I don't wanna oversimplify, but many of them selected the finest and the most exquisite display of the loving kindness of God imaginable. They wrote about the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God taking on human flesh, humbling himself, leaving heaven, becoming a baby, a lowly child, as low as you can get, needy. They write about his perfect 
obedience, his taking the law of Moses on his shoulders and carrying it in holiness and goodness and pleasing God the whole way through. They write about his sacrificial and self-giving love on the cross for the enemies of God, to turn them from enemies to children, men who would have turned out like Sihon and Og but now become the children of God and co-heirs with Christ as they look at Christ, repent and believe. They write about that, they write a lot about that. They wrote about the justice of God fully satisfied Nothing left, nothing remaining, as if there was a a giant bucket of the wrath of God poured out on Christ, and then you look and the bucket's bone dry. There's nothing left, nothing left for the people of God. There's nothing. And then their hearts explode as they write about the Lord Jesus Christ rising from the dead, bursting out of the grave in everlasting glory for his people, the hope of eternal life that's unchanging and won't ever be moved. They're writing still, still, modern times writing about the loving kindness of God. They're not over it. Are you over it? Ben prayed that way in our prayer meeting. We, if we're honest, we, we're fickle, we're frail. But his loving kindness is the same. He's still infinitely praiseworthy. Your jaw should drop. And you should give him thanks for his loving kindness especially in Jesus. We began thinking about the Mississippi River, its ancient nature, seeming ancient nature, the way it was unchanging. It seems to be everlasting. It goes on and on and on and on. And yet, the river is really just a little infant compared with our God. God is eternal. He's the ancient of days. He exists everlastingly without change before he made the world and the river. He's the same, his loving kindness is everlasting, expressing itself, overflowing again and again to his people in church history and in redemption history and in your lives. What he did at the cross wasn't an exception. It was the fruit of an unchanging, everlasting loving kindness. And his covenant people have the joy of forever giving him thanks as we find out again and again that his loving kindness is for us everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you do not change. We go up, we go down, you're the same. All your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. You won't change your mind. Think of Hebrews. You interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for you to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us, the hope that is Christ within the veil, that you would be so inconceivably full of loving kindness for people like us, that the anchor would hold, that Christ your son will accomplish your purpose and save all your people and bring us to you finally, glorified, fully raised from the dead, made like him, having seen him as he is. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you that you never change. Thank you that you're the same. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.